was in a courtroom because of his faith in Christ. He'd been converted. Obviously a very brilliant young man, very devoted, full of great gifts. We're told in the sixth chapter that uh, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, that early embryonic Christian faith, so few in number, was under great opposition and pressure. Stephen was arrested because of his commitment to Christ, and he expressed his faith in an incomparably magnificent way recorded in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. It's one of the great sermons in all of history, and I would urge you to read it. The key point that he is making in this, in summary, is in that 48th verse. However, the Most High God does not live in houses made by men. That was a threat to the whole ecclesiastical system of the day that felt that God resided and was confined in and to that temple on the mount. Ignorant of the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come and the veil in the temple had been torn from top to bottom, not just so man could get in, but so God could get out, and the way was open now for all men, and the temple was to be built upon Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets, the foundation, and you and I, the living members of the body of Christ, the living temple of Christ, for you are the church. Not this building, not this program, you are the church, the living stones, Peter tells us, of the living temple, the body, and the blessing, and the presence of Christ in our world today. Well, for that declaration of biblical truth and revelation from Jesus Christ, they were outraged. And I read you earlier, when they heard him say all of this, when they heard him say this, they knew that that ecclesiastical system was shattered if this man's message was heard in the world because then all men could come to God. All men could trust the Lord. Christ could be anywhere and everywhere and all lives could be changed and we would no longer have exclusive control over the presence and the power of God. It was a threat to the whole system and so they were going to do away with him. When they heard this, they were furious, gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing as I mentioned earlier, at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see the heavens open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and dragged him outside the city and there outside the gates, today known as St. Stephen's Gate, they stoned him to death. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's almost a literal echo from the cross of Christ, isn't it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he died. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Why? Why did he die? I mean, here, a young, vibrant, intelligent leader 
in this young church. Why did he die? It introduces the idea of the prodigality of God. God, what's going on here? We needed Stephen. We needed him. Powerful mind, eloquent tongue, dedicated spirit, powerful personality. We needed him. Why? Why is this scripture here? Not only because of the biblical truths we find revealed in Stephen's sermon, not only the revelations of the relationship, the living, ongoing, uninterrupted relationship a person has with Jesus Christ between this life and the next. There is no side room. There is no ante room. There is no detour to the presence of God. When you die, you go immediately into the presence of him who is standing there in the divine receiving line to welcome you home. Why is this here? All of those truths are important. Two ideas I want to share with you this morning. One, I see in this the balance in all of God's plan. The balance in all of God's plan. We see so little. We see through a glass darkly. We are so limited by time and space, so provincial. We do not see the end from the beginning. So why do such tragedies occur, untimely tragedies? Well, there's a balance here. Given the perspective of history, we see that Stephen died for the cause so that Paul might live for it. In a human way, Stephen was the price paid for Saul's ministry. Not his soul, but his ministry. For standing there, listening to this sermon, Standing there, hearing this prayer, standing there watching the appearance on the face of Stephen, which he later remarked about in some of his writings, was Saul, Saul of Tarsus, consenting to, directing, approving the stoning of Stephen. Peterson translates this, and Saul was standing there congratulating the killers. And this brilliant, erudite mind reasoned, what makes a man pray like that? There's no law that makes a man pray like that. The law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and he prays for us. He's got something I don't have. He has a spirit. I don't possess. Who is this that does this to men? And a few days later, he asked the same question when he fell with the blinding light from heaven, hitting him between the spiritual eyes. He fell in the dust of the Damascus Road and he said, Are you the Lord? Is that what does it? Who are you, Lord? Are you the one that gives a man the power and the love to pray when he's being stoned to death? Are you the Lord who prays? For forgiveness for his persecutors who are you and the answer comes back tenderly i'm jesus of nazareth 
And Saul the persecutor got up out of the dust of the Damascus road to become Paul the proclaimer of the gospel message. Stephen only preached one sermon that we know about. It was some sermon. And what preacher would not give his life if he could preach one sermon that would produce one Paul? Christianity's greatest spokesman, greatest theologian, greatest missionary, the man who would write 25% of our New Testament, converted the balance in God's plan. Stephen dies, Paul lives, and the message is multiplied to the ends of the earth. But there is another idea I want to share with you. It's a paradox, and it'll bounce off of both sides of your mind if you let it. It's a part of life, and we know it is there, and we need to see it in the Scripture as well. We see in this passage and in this event and in others that I will relate to both the bitterness and the blessing of unrealized hopes. Both the bitterness and the blessing of unrealized dreams and plans. No man, no person wants to depart this life unless they are very very ill and in incurable pain. We want to live. And why is it that we want to live? It is not just because of the brevity of life. It is brief. Swift to its day, swift to its end moves life's closing day. It is brief. But I don't think that's the thing that tears at us. It's not so much life's brevity as it is its incompleteness. It, we just aren't able to do all that we want to do and dream and fulfill all of the dreams we want to fulfill and realize all of the hopes that we want to realize. It's that incompleteness that makes us want to, at whatever age we may be, wants us to live and to find completion. Well, you and I are not alone in that. I wish you would look in your Bible and I'll make a quick summary of it here for just a moment of the many people who, who didn't find completeness. We will talk in a moment about what they did find. Abraham and Ur of, Ur of the Chaldees hears a voice from God saying, I want to make your seed to multiply as the seeds as the sands of the sea and I'm going to give you a land 
And Abraham, by faith, leaves Ur of the Chaldees, comes across that fertile crescent, across that desert, all the way over to the land of promise. He's moving out by faith. God has promised me a land. God has promised me a place. God has promised me a people. And he gets there. And he never owns one square foot of Canaan. Not one. Only a grave in Hebron. And his grandson Jacob caught the same vision, knew the same promise, had the same hope. What happened to him? He died a stranger in a strange land. Joseph, his son, caught the same vision, same hope, same dream. his history ends in a coffin in Egypt. Moses, 40 years in Pharaoh's court, brilliant, educated, powerful leader. And then 40 years in the wilderness, God getting him ready for the last 40 years of his life, which was to be that great event of leading the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage to the promised land. He's going to the promised land at 80 years of age. He still has a dream of 40 more years and moving into the promised land. And he gets on the threshold of the promised land there on Mount Nebo's lonely heights in Moab. Moses dies. He doesn't get to the land. He died in Moab. We all die in Moab. We all die in Moab. We all die short of where we want to be and to do all that we want to do and accomplish all that we want to accomplish. Stephen died in Moab. One sermon. Paul preached 30 years. He had the world in his heart. He wanted to go to the ends of the earth. He had a dream to go to Spain and preach. He never got to Spain. He got a jail cell in Rome and died. Moab. Well, what is the answer to this? You have your Bibles. If not, make a reference. Second Chronicles, the sixth chapter. David, after his long reign as the king of Israel, wanted to build a house for God. He said, it's not right for me to live in a palace and God to live in a tent. So he wanted to build a palace. But he didn't get to build the temple for God, the house for God. The sixth chapter of Second Chronicles, Solomon is telling us this. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord. Look at that. Had it in his heart. A dream, a hope, a desire, a godly desire, not a desire for his own glory, not a desire for wealth, not a desire for power, a desire to do something for God. Build a temple for 
the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well. You did well to have it in your heart. God compliments David. It was right to dream dreams. It was right to have visions. Listen, my friend, don't give up on them. Don't live in the dust of depression and discouragement. Live with dreams and hopes. Plans beyond plans. Don't live in the past. The best really is yet to be. The best is yet to be. Oh, some men die by shrapnel, some go down in flames. But most men perish inch by inch who play at little games or dream little dreams. You did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you're not the one to build the temple, but your son. Who is your own flesh and blood? He is the one who will build the temple to my name. The bitterness is the brevity of life, not only, but its incompleteness also. Where then is the blessing of life? Where is the blessing of disappointment? Where is the blessing of unfulfilled dreams and hope? Well, first of all, there's the blessing that comes to you individually. You're better for your dreams, better for your hopes, better for big plans. Make no little plans. Church, make no little plans for the future. Don't have small hopes. collectively and individually does something to our soul it stretches our soul does something for us Tennyson was right better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all some people say well what you have not experienced you have not missed how tragic such a philosophy have your dreams your hopes you'll be better for them do something for you It'll lift your eyes and your mind above, above the dreary reality of, of today and you'll begin to look up towards some celestial lights of divine promise for tomorrow but it's also a blessing to those who follow let me say that to those of you who are my age or older in this church we may be the old men of Pentecost, but we're to dream dreams and we're to have visions. We're to plant trees under which we never will sit. That's where the dreams are to come from. Don't give up on them in, in your own heart and life and home business, whatever it might be, and certainly not in the work of the Lord. Because 
it will be a blessing to those who follow. Notice this. The dream of the Father became the deed of the Son. The dream of the Father became the deed of the Son. Sounds a little like God to me. God says, it is not my will that any perish, but that all come to repentance. I want the whole world to be saved. Who brought it about? His Son died to save the whole world. The Father's desire, the Son's deed, redemption, the accomplishment. It'll be a blessing to those who follow. You know, I'm convinced that most victories come out of apparent defeat. Most real victories come out of seeming defeat. It may take a year or five or ten or a thousand, but they will come. They will come. And then lastly, I want to point out something that uh, interests me, and that is the way God keeps books. Uh, the divine bookkeeping of God is an interesting thing uh, to look at. And to help us see that, turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. Fourth chapter of the book of Romans. Paul is here talking about Abraham and about faith and about salvation. And listen to what he says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? What, what did Abraham learn? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham, here comes God's bookkeeping, not like ours. God is a different bottom line. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Man puts in faith, God puts in righteousness. Now, when a man's work, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God and justifies the, the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David's Psalm, 32nd Psalm. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord never counts against him. Here is a powerful truth. God counts honest purpose for achievement. God counts honest, divine purpose for achievement. Whatever the world sees, God sees fulfillment. He sees achievement. David, you did well to have it in your heart. You did well to have it in your heart. Now, I believe under David's name, 
in the great account book of God, he has written down there a finished temple to God. He had it in his heart. And God counted it for fulfillment, for achievement. He takes the desire for the deed. He takes the desire for the deed. So in conclusion, I want you to come back to Moab with me for a moment. To where we all die. Where Moses died. Looking over into the promised land. And we lament Moses never made it to the promised land. Wait a while. Wait a year. How about a hundred? How about a thousand? How about a couple thousand? And the son of David, Jesus Christ, is standing on Mount Tabor, better known as the Mount of Transfiguration, where he is enveloped in all of the Shekinah glory of the splendor of God. And he has with him his three friends, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus brought along two guests, one named Elijah, the prince of the prophets, the representative of all of the prophets. And he brought along Moses, standing on the mountain of transfiguration with God. Moses made it into the land. We do not die in Moab. We're going to live in the temple and the house and the presence of the resurrected, glorious Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Thanks be to God. dreams will not end. They will be fulfilled. Your hopes will not be dashed upon the clods of some freshly dug grave. They will be realized. For he makes all things new. No Moab. New Jerusalem. Come join us there. Not by works of righteousness, but by faith. It gets accounted for, credited to us for righteousness. Would you come to trust the Lord this morning as your Savior? Come be a part of the life and fellowship of a church that endeavors to proclaim his love and his message. Don't be restless. Because there's some restless hearts here. We'd sung two verses of the invitation hymn this morning. Maybe three. And suddenly two young men came walking down that outside aisle. One a junior, another a senior in MacArthur High School. Jim Graham, our student minister, didn't know them. Jeff Simmons didn't know them. 
But a young man from our church had gone to camp a few weeks ago. And he'd come home and he'd witnessed to his friends. And his two friends, without their friend being present this morning, two young men, on the fourth verse of that invitation hymn, came down that outside aisle, both accepting Christ as their Savior. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to stay in Moab. Come on to the land of transfiguration and trial, ushered there by the grace of God. Would you come? Let's stand, let's sing together.